This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Steve caught me before service. This is kind of impromptu. Obviously, Steve's one of the good men in our church and has developed a ministry to the homeless folk here in Nashville, has a heart for that. You've been hearing a lot about it. Uh, This is unseasonable weather, which is really important in the life of homeless folk. Tell them what you told me before. Yeah, so um, the uh, rescue missions and the Room in the Inn open on November through March, and uh, they have a protocol that if it's not below 27 degrees, that they have normal, uh, just the normal uh, beds available. So today is a normal day. Below 27, more beds open. Below 16, more beds open. Last year, we had 53 days that were needed more beds. Uh, this week, we had a very low temperature, and the beds were filled at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, what happened this week was, um, well, last year, 68 people died in the streets in Nashville. This week, two people did. One of them on a church, one of them laying next to a church in Madison. Uh, this doesn't need to happen here. And um, so we started a campaign. You've seen my, uh, the backpack beds that we've talked about before. There's a campaign right now called goodnightnashville.org. Goodnightnashville.org. You can go on and donate any amount toward a backpack bed, which will be distributed like the next day to people on the streets here in Nashville by outreach ministers all over town. So I just ask you to think in your heart about uh, those that won't come back to a warm bed tonight. Um, and there are literally over a thousand of them tonight will not be uh, in shelter. So um, that's all yeah. I'm asking. Yeah, and if you want to know more about it, um, Steve, you're always looking for people to help get involved. So check with Steve after service. Reading the scripture this morning, I sent out to you guys on Friday. That would be our text today. I was reading it again this morning, and it reminded me of something that I've read before to our congregation, but it's worth reading every year or so, actually. Written in 1979 by a 52-year-old named Irma Bombeck, housewife humorist, brilliant lady. Um, It was said that she wrote this after she found out she was dying of cancer in the mid to late 90s. That's not true. She wrote this in 79. But she herself had battled kidney disease and lots of things. She had faced her own mortality for a long time. But whenever it was written, it was written brilliantly. And the little uh, reading is called, If I Had My Life to Live Over. You've probably read it before, but it bears repeating. If I had my life to live over, I would have gone to bed when I was sick instead of pretending the earth would go into a holding pattern if I weren't there for the day. If I had my life to do over, I would have burned the pink candle, the one sculpted like a rose. I would have burned it before it ended up melting in storage. I would have talked less, and I would have listened more. I would have invited friends over to dinner, even if the carpet was stained or the sofa faded. I would have eaten the popcorn in the good living room and worried much less about the dirt when someone wanted to light a fire in the fireplace. If I had my life to do over, I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble about his youth. I would have shared more of the responsibility carried by my husband. I would have never insisted the car windows be rolled up on a summer day because my hair had just been teased and sprayed. I would have sat on the lawn with all of the grass stains. 
I would have cried and I would have laughed a lot less while watching television and a lot more while watching life. I would never have bought anything just because it was practical, just because it wouldn't show soil or was guaranteed to last a lifetime. Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy, I would have cherished every moment and realized that the wonderment growing inside me was the only chance in life to really assist God in a miracle. If I had my life to live over, when my kids kissed me impetuously, I would have never shooed them away saying, later, go get washed up for dinner. There would have been a whole lot more I love yous and a lot more I'm sorry's. But mostly, given another shot at life, I would seize every minute, look at it, and really see it, live it, never give it back, and I would stop sweating all the small stuff. I wouldn't worry about who doesn't like me, who has more, or who's doing what. Instead, I would cherish the relationships I have with those who do love me. I thought about that this morning as I read the text from Mark 9. I want you to look at the text with me. Mark 9, five verses, and then we'll go back, and I'll give you a little bit more of the context. Jesus left with his disciples and started through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know about it. Now, he didn't want anyone to know about it because he was teaching the disciples at this time that the Son of Man would be handed over to people who would kill him. But he told them three days later he would rise to life. The disciples did not understand what Jesus meant, and they were afraid to ask. Jesus and his disciples went to his home in Capernaum. He didn't own the home. It was a benefactor, a supporter who allowed him to stay there. But he went to the home where he frequently stayed there in Capernaum. And after they were inside, inside the house, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about along the way? They had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And so they didn't answer. Context. It was about six months prior to his death, and Jesus was ministering in the north country that we knew or we know as Galilee, where he did most of his ministry, or at least two-thirds of it. He's there in Galilee, he's ministering, and then he makes a move even farther to the north to a town in Caesarea Philippi on the way to Syria. Mark 9 begins in that context by saying that Jesus, with his 12 disciples, Jesus made a selection of Peter, James, and John, something that he did not infrequently. There were times that he would, he had a crowd, he had a community, he had a 70 that followed him, he had 12, and then he had three. And Mark 9 says that he called out Peter, James, and John and he took them up on a high mountain. And the Bible said when they got to the top of the mountain, he was transfigured. We know it as the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a popular story in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus. He was transfigured. The Greek word literally means that he was unveiled. The divinity of Christ was never more clear as the word transfigured literally means to pull back, to separate the curtain. The material, the corporeal, the physical, the three-dimensional, somehow all of that veneer was pulled back and the disciples saw him. Verses two through four of the chapter say that his appearance literally changed. You remember Ron Howard's movie 30 years ago, Cocoon? 
I think of it something like that. He was glowing, something phenomenal about him. Um, his appearance changed, and the Bible said even his clothing was impacted, and his clothing was a dazzling white, and the writer indicates that it was so white that there was no process on earth that could make it that white. So that's a profound experience. <clears throat> if that's not profound enough, Scripture says, two people from the Hebrews' history, from the Jewish people's history, Elijah and Moses, big wigs. Moses from 1,300 years before, Elijah from 850 to 900 years before, those two guys resurrect, come out of the grave, and they are seen talking to Jesus. How about that? Peter, James, and John are standing watching all of this. It's a profound experience. The experience wraps up, and Jesus along with the three, head down the mountain. They get to the bottom of the mountain, and a man rushes up to Jesus, and he says, my son is terribly sick. He's so sick that he even throws himself in the fire. Can you imagine? Was it epilepsy? Was it seizures? Was it psychological pathology, a disorder? We don't really know. All we know is there was a desperate father with a little boy who was so sick that he would inadvertently be thrown, throw himself into the fire. The man runs up to Jesus and says, can you help me, please? Your disciples couldn't. The nine that stayed at the bottom of the mountain, they couldn't. Jesus looks at the man and tells him, I can help you. And the man then admits, he says, remember this famous line, Lord, I believe from the King James, help thou my unbelief. And Jesus lovingly doesn't say, well, you know, I can't work with unbelief. Go back to the back of the line, continue to cultivate the belief side, and when you get it all together, come back and I might work with you. Jesus looks at him and says, I appreciate your honesty. I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, what more can we say, really? Jesus says, that might not be perfect faith, but it's honest faith, and I can work with that. And he heals the man's son, and then has a conversation about faith with the disciples that's really provocative. So now you have the transfiguration. You have a nine-year-old boy or a little boy's life given back to him. And the Bible says they leave there. They leave that unstated place. We really don't know where the mountain was, but somewhere up in the north country near Caesarea probably. They leave there, and the text reads that as Jesus and his disciples turn their face back to Capernaum, and as they head to Capernaum along the north coast of the Sea of Galilee, on the journey, Jesus begins speaking plainly to them about his impending death. You, you want more profundity, more depth in the scenario? Now Jesus is looking at them talking about his passion. Not just his passion, he's talking about how he must needs die, be buried, and he even predicts his resurrection. The Bible says the disciples are so addled by the nature of that information, they can't really wrap their mind around what he's saying, and they're scared to ask him, which you need not ever be, but they were afraid to ask. So then the Bible says they come to the little house there in Capernaum, and Mark says that as they enter the house, and as they're putting their bags away or whatever it is, before anybody even sets down, Jesus standing there in the living area of that little house, looks at them and says, question. What, what were you guys arguing about 
back on the road. What were you arguing about along the way? Look at verse 33. Jesus and his disciples went to his home in Capernaum, and after they were inside the house, Jesus asked them. Interesting. Luke's telling of this story in the, in, in the ninth chapter. Luke says that Jesus knew what they were arguing about and asked them. That's a great teacher. Jesus doesn't always believe good spiritual guidance is telling people what he knows. Most good teachers know that. He knew that what really needed to happen was to draw out of them this truth because truths are implanted in us, the imago Dei, the image of God. This stuff is down in our substrata. It doesn't come from an external transformation. It comes from mining and drawing on what's already inside of us. Luke says that Jesus knew what they were arguing about and asked them. Good teaching. He asked them. Now, if it would have been me, I would have said, I know what you were arguing about, and it's ridiculous. What do you have to say for yourself? I wouldn't have waited to that point. I mean, transfiguration, little boy healed. I just pour myself out and tell them how I'm going to die and be resurrected. And all of a sudden, I hear him talk, them talking about the patheticness of a caste system and a pecking order. I mean, I, you, you stop immediately and say, are you kidding me? This is where you're going to take where we've just been? This is how you're going to denigrate the holiness of this experience? Jesus goes through all of that and listens to them all the way home. The work of the Holy Spirit in our life never molests, but it always romances and draws. It never pushes. It never imposes. But it just takes the journey with you as Jesus listening. And at the right time, Jesus doesn't say, so what were you guys talking about? snarky, sarcastically. What were you talking about? No, the text seems to indicate the tone was something more akin to this. What were you guys talking about back there on the road? And watch the work of the image of God inside of you. There was no need for a condemnation. There was no need for an indictment. But a good question, the Bible said, caused them. Watch them. They're standing there, and the Bible says as he asked them, nobody said a word. Their heads went down, and their toes stubbed the floor, and they looked at one another, waiting on somebody else to talk. And they looked at him and they probably just shook their head. Verse 34 said, as it turned out, they had been arguing among themselves about which one of them was the greatest. There was one other time they did this, and it was just as ridiculous. The other time they did this was six months later, the night before he was crucified. He took off his robe, put on a towel, and washed their feet. And after he washed their feet, the next discussion, Todd, was trying to figure out who of them was the favorite and who of them was the greatest. So getting the scenario straight, <clears throat> on the heels of two great miracles, 
having been in the resurrected presence of Moses and Elijah, posthumously, dead men come alive, having heard Jesus foretell of his impending death, these guys were so spiritually out of touch with the reality of things that they found themselves caught in the drivel of an ego-laced, inferiority-laced, the drivel of a conversation about which one of them was the greatest. And I, I think there's some reasoning that you can even see in the story. It's not an excuse, but it's, it's a reason. You know, I, I wondered this morning as I was reading it again, and I hadn't thought about this until this morning, was it because Peter, James, and John had just been up on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured? I mean, think about the caste system that could develop there. We know that he had 12, and we all know that he had an inner three. Think about how that sets up. Think about when you have 12 sons and one of them gets a coat of many colors. You got to think about the parenting side of this too, right? Think about how not infrequently he looks at the 12 who are favored, preferred, inner over the 70, periodically looks at the 12, Pam, and says, Peter, James, John, come with me. And I'm not doubting a bit. I mean, these were young men, late teens, 20s, maybe 30s. You got to think that at the base of the mountain when he said, hey, guys, I want to go up on the mountain, um, Peter, James, John, the others were like, Peter, James, and John, there we go, Peter, James. Yeah, the powers that be, the inner circle, they were at least thinking in their heart, rolling their eyes. Yeah, they're... Peter, James, John, wonder why they're so special. And you have to wonder if not only did the nine feel that way, well, there they go again. I mean, what are we, chop liver? But you also have to wonder if Peter, James, and John didn't look at the other guys and see you, fellas. We're going to go with Jesus A Barney Fife moment. <laughs> Did they see this grace as an indicator of their superiority? Maybe, maybe it was because when they came down, the man whose son was healed revealed that he had asked the other disciples who had stayed behind to heal his son. So here's Peter, James, and John with Jesus, and the guy comes up and says, I need my son healed, and these guys couldn't do it. You wonder if Peter, James, and John, fresh from the transfiguration, thought to themselves, well, if we would have. They're just humans. Who knows? What we do know is that they were indeed arguing in the presence of humility incarnate, they were arguing about which one of them was the best. And it would be hilarious if it weren't so tragic. And we could get a few laughs out of it and already have if it weren't so revealing, not just in regards to them, but in regards to all of us. They were arguing 
about who was the greatest, so they did not answer. The purpose of his questions is Jesus' questions. The questions of God have the capacity to stop us in our tracks. And, and they generally come, what we learn here is they generally come in incarnate ways. Maybe not in the embodiment we know as Jesus, but in the more cosmic, whole Christ, in the fleshly bodies of our children. When my friend hears his little boy say as they lay down at night, Daddy, your stories are a whole lot better when your cell phone's not in your hand. These are the incarnate ways that God speaks to us. It's interesting to me, verse 34 tells us they were arguing. Look at verse 34. They had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest, so they did not answer. Now look at verse 35 through 37. Let's look at it in the message. He sat down, and he summoned the 12. Now, I, I want to say this about that. What were you guys arguing about along the way? And to their lack of response, Christ's response to their thick-headedness was so in character. He didn't explode. He didn't kick them to the curb as monumental waste of his time, and he didn't even chide them. He didn't say, what were you arguing about along the way? And when they didn't respond, he didn't press into that and say, hello, anybody? Humiliation seldom exerted by another human being on a human being is a medium through which God can work very effectively. The Bible says that as they stood there quietly, instead of assuming a high position over them, the scripture says he sat down. Watch him. He lowers himself and he settles in. And he says, so you guys want first place? I get it. Then I tell you what do. Take last place. Be the servant every chance you get. And he looks over and he says, Bobby. And the little boy wanders over and Jesus pulls him up against his knee. And in front of the fellows, Jesus cradles this little one in his arms. And he smiles at them in that tender moment and says, whoever embraces one of these children as I do embraces me and far more than me. Condescension internally, going lower, moving toward a child in servanthood. Jesus said, if you get that, you get God. And it's so often the case with Jesus, he takes their worldview and craftily, kindly, and lovingly sets it on its head. Literally, with that little child from that seated position, he turns their world upside down. And I just want to say this, if you follow Christ, if you are one who is doing the real internal journey of true spirituality, 
I want you to know this issue of having your world turned upside down, having your worldview set on its head is something that will happen frequently in your life. And if you're coasting along and this kind of thing never happens, stop. Periodically, there will be moments in the life of the one who is really engaged with God where God in God's inimitable loving way will confront you, will correct you, and will even convert you. You'll hear the rooster crow, and like Simon, your heart will break, and you'll weep. And if you'll allow God, God will change you. I think the question today that Jesus asked, what were you arguing about along the way, is one that can be appropriated from the context of Mark 9 into a lot of scenarios, into a lot of our lives, and I could talk about that all day long, servanthood, superiority, inferiority, all the caste systems that happen. But here's really what I want to say. If we move beyond the specifics of their argument, we see a broader picture that I can so relate to. We see the disciples caught in a life-depleting vortex known as pettiness a complete loss of perspective. In the presence of Jesus, in the immediate process of the most significant event the world would ever see, the crucifixion of God, they got sidetracked. Somehow, between a transfiguration, a little boy being healed, and a crucified God. In the middle of that, they fell into triviality. They got drunk on the unimportant. Poetically, in the presence of eternity's exclamation point, they missed the point. But before we're too hard on them, we have to concede that we are not unlike them. Somewhere up in Madison today is a church closer in than we are, but they shouldn't be. But somewhere in Madison today, there's a church based upon what Steve Lindstrom just said. There is a church in Madison who is asking themselves as they sing their songs and as they preach their message, how somebody died on their porch last night. And it's not their porch, it's our porch. Somewhere between eating out and hymns, Nashville died on our porch last night. There are these arresting moments. <clears throat> we realize we are not unlike them. We all have the tendency to be small-minded. We have the tendency in the midst of the supernal the supernatural, the holy, the beautiful, we have the tendency to be unmindful, forgetful, and to end up focusing on non-essentials, paltry pursuits, and things that are of so little or no consequence. I mean, how many times in our life have we looked back at hills that we shed blood and died on and thought upon 
reflection. My God, that was a lot of blood to shed on that hill. That was a lot of lives to give there. In our lives and in our worlds that are so pulled and influenced by the masterful marketing techniques of a world system that pulls out all of the stops to convince us that gross, unseemly luxuries, and I'm not just talking about stuff, I'm talking about relationships and the way we do humans. In the middle of a world that pulls out all the stops to convince us that gross, unseemly luxuries are really deep-seated needs, in our lives that are so overwhelmed by responsibilities, by overlapping, competing demands, by packed schedules, don't we periodically need Christ to sit us down as we are along the way and ask us, what? I'm not even telling you that you shouldn't have argued. And I'm not going to tell you what I think you were arguing about. I just want you to do the good work what were you arguing about along the way? At the base of the Mount of Miracles, at the top of the Valley of Human Despair, at that juncture, what is consuming your attention? Where is your focus? What are you expending your life's energy on? Are you sure you've got the ladder of success leaned against the right building? Do you really need to get involved with that? What was it that you were arguing about on the way to church this morning? Was it really that important? Was it big enough? How many times have we looked back at those arguments, those discussions, those things, and thought to ourselves, was it really worth, was it big enough to pay the emotional price that you have to pay afterwards? Do you ever have a major blowout with someone only to be incapable a month later of remembering what it was about, but very well remembering the scars and the bleeding that's left? How many friendships, how many marriages, how many businesses, oh, for crying out loud, how many churches have been destroyed at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration? After moments of healing and holiness, we depart and forget what we saw and experienced, but I'll close. God graciously has a way somewhere between full moons and sunsets, homeless children in the backseat of a car that won't start on 27 degree nights and homeless men who die on church property. God has a way with hospitals and funerals God has a way of speaking in very incarnate ways. God looks at us with eternity's perspective in his eye as we are sidetracked in our pettiness and triviality and he whispers, not chides, why don't you talk to your mother? Why is it that you don't have time to pray? Why don't you have money to give? You, um, you, you didn't go to your daughter's game, why? You didn't take that vacation because 
You took a job you hate for what reason? How much was the raise? And I don't think ever Jesus is trying to induce regrets over past mistakes, but I think God is desperately trying to reduce them in the present and in the future. And I want to say that he did not condemn them for arguing. He simply asked them to be mindful of what they were arguing about. And I think God would agree, there are some things worth discussing, there are some things worth disagreeing over, and perhaps there even may be some things worth arguing about. But the reality is, there are far more things not worth arguing about than there are things worth arguing about. And maybe for our homework this week, we could utilize a variation on the serenity prayer. And it would be, God grant me the serenity to not argue about the things not worth arguing about and the courage to argue about the things that are and the wisdom to know the difference. So what I would say this week in terms of homework, and I'll send this out to you tonight, is be mindful this week of the things you argue about. Before you argue, do a quick serenity prayer. If you don't catch yourself in time after you argue, reflect back and see if there was really value and effectiveness in the triviality. And finally, reflect on the other participant. Be open to understanding. Be open to grace and mercy. And beyond just the issue of arguing, it may not be arguing, it may be the little girl's ball game, or it may be the vacation, or it may be the big decision you've got. Be mindful this week that we live between transfigurations and the world's great need. We should be mindful of how we expend the energies of our life and be open for Jesus to look at you and ask you really good questions. He will. Sit with them in him a while. He will transform you. Can you say amen?